Hello, welcome to the complete episode 12, a dozen now. Uh, I'm Matt Gasteyer. See Travis, I did it that time. And, you're not uh, Matt Gasteyer. Not when you're in. Not when you're in this podcast. This podcast, <laughs> you're going to be known as Snowball. Dig. <laughs> well, that was uh, Travis coming in hot and heavy. There, he's getting us uh, ready for the uh, the conversation. How you doing, Travis? I'm doing pretty good. Not too bad. It's a nice and sunny day today. I was uh, got out got outside, which was great. And so I'm looking forward to talk about this movie. Yeah, me too. Um, I was having a great day today until uh, about an hour ago when a wasp stung me. Um, <gasps> so, so yeah, but you know what, though? Like, I I was going to take some medicine because it was pretty painful. But I felt like, you know, this is actually, like, great for the podcast because now I, I know kind of what they were going through in Vietnam. You know, like, it's just, it's hard. It's hard. It's a hard you're, you're 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 so brave. I know. I'm really soldiering on. I would call myself the <laughs> the crazy the crazy brave. Is that what it is? The, uh, the crazy stupid and the stupid oh, brave. Uh, oh, crazy Earl. No, the uh, the how how uh, how Modine describes the uh, the people at the training camp. Yes, soldiers. Yes, I forget. yes. Anyway, uh, that's another voice that we have here, and. Uh, that is Doug McCambridge, <laughs> our guest this time. Doug, say ho- hello to the nice people at home. Hello, everyone that's listening. And, fellas, I really appreciate you bringing me on here. Um, I don't know. I guess I'm not bringing the intensity that Travis did. <laughs> but, you know. That's quite all right. We, uh, we don't need to um, pretend we're in Vietnam for the entire podcast. We'll do, oh. like, we'll do the second half of the podcast in uh in like we're in vietnam okay yeah um, i can do that That's by the way uh we're talking about full metal jacket this week i didn't even say anything but I, if anybody has not guessed yet this is not the eyes wide shut episode uh, <laughs> <laughs> no one remembers that famous training scene from yeah, eyes wide exactly shut. um yeah and it's also not a big lebowski episode um it, it's uh it's an actual vietnam movie um and uh yeah we're uh we're getting towards the end here travis we only got two more movies Oh, well, one more movie and then a wrap up, which so yes, we I will mean, do a couple more episodes. Um, we are. Yeah, this is a uh, it's been a journey. Let's it's been just a long say that and winding road. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, Doug, wh- uh, before we get into the movie, why don't you um, sure. tell the listeners at home a little something about yourself? Well, I uh, I could talk about the fact that I have another podcast. I don't know if you just want shameless self promotion. Shameless, is that yes. The, well, okay. and it, it also it fits in. So please segue. It at does. The end. It does. Yeah. I I co-host a podcast called Good Times Great Movies, uh, where my co-host, uh, she and myself, talk about movies strictly from the 1980s. Um, they're usually pretty bad movies. I mean, we stumble into some good ones now and again. The thing I say is we did not set out to make a bad movie podcast, but that's kind of what it's become. So I actually appreciate when I can go to other shows and talk about movies that may not be quite as terrible as the movies that we usually talk about. <laughs> but are still from the 80s. But so. are still from the 80s, yeah, right. They, yeah, they did right. make a couple good movies in the 80s, not too many. They, there's a handful. handful and yeah. my... My co-host and I, we did make a deal that if we go on other shows and talk about a movie from the 80s, we cannot cover that on our show. So Full Metal Jacket is now off the list. Oh, wow. I hope that's not um, 
you know, causing strife in your, uh, in Jamie your friendship. Doesn't care. <laughs> Jamie doesn't care. And she's very excited. If I go on other podcasts and talk about horror movies, she is on board for that because that is stuff she cannot deal with. Oh, okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for coming on. And, um, yeah, before uh, we get into the movie, uh, sure. what we do usually with, uh, our guests is, um, if you could just say a few words about Stanley Kubrick, uh, mm-hmm. how you, feel about him as a director how you came to his movies and sort of what your relationship with them uh how it's evolved as you have watched more movies and watched more of his movies yeah and i mean he's he's a director and he's really the only director i can think of whose movies for the most part i think i saw when i was too young because the majority of his films i have revisited later and almost to a T they are much better than I remember them being the first time I saw them. Hmm. Um, you know, I was, I was a real Stephen King head when I was in like middle school and into high school. So when I saw the shining, when I watched it on TV, it was a, it was a bad TV cut. I was probably 12 or 13. I was like, what the shit is this? Like it was, it was not the Stephen King book. I was not on board with it. I, I, <laughs> hated it i i really did and it wasn't until years later and actually seeing it several more times that i understand what a masterpiece it is now and and it's the same with clockwork orange i had read the book i didn't like the film i can now appreciate the film much more than i did when i was probably a, a freshman in college or something 2001 was the same way now it's i i think it's his greatest film i don't know if it's my favorite film of his um but it's i think it's clearly his best film but man when i saw it as like a 18 19 year old i did not get it i had no time for it the end when the monolith when he's he's old he's in the bed i was like how why wasn't this the entire movie <laughs> like i love the ending of it but i hated getting there um the only movies We'll get into Full Metal Jacket, but Spartacus, I liked a lot more the first time I saw it than when I revisited it. Uh, Same with Lolita. Those are the only two that had diminishing returns to me. Everything else has gotten better the older I get, the more experienced I am with film. And the only one I loved the first time I saw it, and I still love it, Eyes Wide Shut. I, I love that film so much. Uh, but that's the only one that was consistent for every single time I saw it. I think it gets better and better. That's interesting. Yeah. That, that's yeah. cause that's the one that probably, um, well, it, I think it's definitely in the category of his films that generates the most sure. polarizing responses. Well, in and, terms of... and that I, the reason is, I mean, that's, that's the film I saw once I had seen other film. Like that's the film hmm that I saw once I, you know, discovered, um, Boonwell and I, uh, David Lynch and, you know, everything was open to me now. And I, I think I had even gone back and I watched 2001. So when I saw Eyes Wide Shut, I was sort of prepared for it. I was, I was ready for it. And I just, I ate that up. And, and the funny thing is I, I saw it, a girl I was seeing at the time, her family rented it. And I like sat there and I watched it with her parents and her sister and, <laughs> After the viewing, 
all they did was sit around and watch how or talk about how horrible the film was. And I sat there the whole time, like, I don't think I should say anything. I, I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> uh, that's funny. Um, that That's actually kind of similar to how I first saw the movie, too, was with a big group of people. But mm-hmm. I'll save that story for another podcast yeah. um, <laughs> you might be covering that at some point yeah. well thanks for that uh doug sure. and, um yeah let's let's dive right in travis uh do you want to give us a, a little bit of setup um on where uh, on how stanley kubrick spent his 1980s yeah no problem so uh shining was a financial success for him um it was getting people in the theaters <laughs> it wasn't the critical success he wanted once again there was a big divide of critics who either got the film on the level that Stanley was looking for or just totally just didn't get what he was trying to put across and once again it bothered him uh you know he struggled constantly with critics loving it audiences hating it audience loving it critics being mixed on it and he just couldn't find that zone that would kind of solve all these things and uh so he started looking for his next project, and that was one of the big things with him is that he was always looking for a really good story. He had lots of like ideas and lots of things presented to him and lots of books and lots of articles, but he could never settle on something until there was a story that really hooked him. So between, uh, between the release of The Shining and the release of this, seven years pass, um, and it took quite a while for him to kind of settle on something. Um, and there's that usual kind of Stanley Kubrick says, Oh, I wasn't looking to make a war picture, but everyone who talked to him after the shining, he was looking around for a war picture. Um, you know, he talked to Michael Hare. Uh, he was introduced to him by, uh, uh, Jean Le Carre. Um, and Michael Hare wrote this novel called, um, Dispatches. Yes, Dispatches, and uh, a Vietnam book. And so he talked to him about, uh, he said, I can't make Dispatches into a movie. It's not a movie. But he was looking to have him help him find some good Vietnam stories to maybe make a movie about. And lo and behold, they come across, he comes across uh, The Short Timers, a book by Gustav Hasford. And uh, he really liked the story. He really liked where it went. He called Michael Hare to help him write it. Um, the two of them wrote it together. Um, there's a great book in which Michael Hare kind of talks about his relationship with Kubrick. Uh, and I read it for this podcast because I said, let's do this. I had some time (laughs) and, uh, and it's really interesting. I'll pepper in some, uh, fun little anecdotes and little behind the scenes things throughout the podcast. But, uh, uh, yeah, so he makes this movie, he puts together, uh, he decides to make a Vietnam film in London, uh, which everyone was like, what? Um, he didn't have a huge budget. I want to say it was something like 17 million, yeah. um, 17 and a half million. And he knew that if he went anywhere or did anything different, he would have wasted all his money. So he wanted to make it right in his own backyard. Um, he found an abandoned, uh, gas facility, um, in, uh oh come on travis it was just it was east london beckton it was in beckton mm-hmm. because when they uh when they actually changed it into that they started calling it beck foo 
because uh, that's where they were going. It was 45 minutes away from his house, and it was an old gas refinery, um, and it was quite amazing because uh, it th- was scheduled to be demolished by the company, and Kubrick instead artfully demolished it, um, talking with engineers and structural engineers and the art designer, and, the, and they just destroyed it in a way that could be, looks like uh, it was bombed out due to war. Um, they had a wrecking ball in there, artfully putting holes in walls where he needed them to be. And, uh, yeah, they really kind of, uh, he changed it into this, you know, this landscape that uh, is very different from any other Vietnam-era movie because it's not set in a jungle. It's set really pretty much in, like, a, you know, like a city streets and the and buildings that surrounded it. So um, that was a big deal. He made a... Uh, nationwide uh, amateurs send in videos uh casting call for his uh for the film um so that was kind of interesting because he uh received so many videos and uh his assistant vitali he was the one who had to watch them all and that's where they found uh that's where they found um vincent d'onofrio he was a friends with matthew modine matthew modine had been courted for the project and got the job told him all about it and d'onofrio borrowed a videotape uh recorder and sat on his stoop and uh, dressed in army fatigues and uh recorded a monologue and sent it his way and kubrick liked it a lot he gained like 60 pounds for the role to kind of get all uh, out of shape but uh that's how they found him uh, yeah, Matthew fun. Modine ran into him at a bar where D'Onofrio was a bouncer, and that's what—that's yeah. how he he mentioned to him <laughs> that he was doing this movie, and that uh, he should try out for it. Yeah, it's and it, that's such a and it's such a cool story because you know it's not like Modine put the tape in his hands; he still submitted it through everything else. So I thought that was pretty interesting because uh, that was one of the characters that Kubrick was f- fearing would be the hardest to cast, and as soon as he saw that tape. And also, he received a cassette tape. D'Onofrio went even further and was just recording, like, letters. Like, he was reading letters about the war in a cassette tape and just sending them to Kubrick. <laughs> like, it went even further, and he, he, he appreciated that and pulled him onto the project. But uh, funny, uh, Matthew Modine only got the part after Anthony Michael Hall. Negotiations with him fell out. Huh, so I didn't know that. Anth- Anthony Michael Hall was originally supposed to be that role, and then he went to Bruce Willis second. Bruce Willis said, can't do it, I'm doing Moonlighting. And then Matthew Modine was settled on. Um, so I thought that was really, that would have completely mm-hmm. changed a lot of, about this movie. Um, Kubrick says he liked Matthew Modine a lot because he was the perfect uh, the perfect mix of, um, oh, what do you say, uh, perfect combinations of sensitivity and macho virility. It was like if Gary Cooper and Henry Fonda had a baby. <laughs> so I found that uh, found that to be interesting. And uh, so, yeah, so uh, they decided to set out and uh, start making the movie. He had, like, a you know, chose from, like, a thousand different palm trees, had him imported from Spain to litter the landscape, over a million plastic plants from Japan um, to pepper into whatever landscape he was using to give it more of that uh, tropical, uh, a- you know, Asiatic vibe. And, uh, yeah, they started filming in around 1984. Um, one of the other big things there is they hired Lee Ermey to be the uh, consultant. He had consultant on Apocalypse Now, The Deer Hunter, and a couple other Vietnam-era movies. And 
during the audition process, Lee Ermey was there giving doing the drill structure routines to the auditioners to kind of rile them up and really show them what it was like. And Kubrick thought it was the best thing he's ever seen and so ended up hiring him to be the drill instructor in the film. Uh, the, the people that he was talking about getting to be the drill instructor for that movie... Um, he bandied the name uh, Robert De Niro around, and he also tried Ed Harris, but Ed Harris was taking a year off after some big project, and uh, Kubrick found that appalling that anyone would want to take time off from something <laughs> they love to do, and so automatically wouldn't cast, wouldn't even talk to him after that about the role. So uh, yeah, so Lee Ermey got that role, um, and you know if you go and look at some of the Lee Ermey interviews, you could see that he was. Uh, he put on a show because he wanted that role really bad. And uh, so he came out, you know, all those, like 50% of the dialogue was improvised by Lee Ermey, which, uh, you know, most of Kubrick's actors, with the exception of, uh, with the exception of uh, uh, Peter, uh, oh my goodness. Peter Sellers. Peter Sellers, there we go. Mm -hmm. With the exception of Peter Sellers and Jack Nicholson, a lot of the, he didn't allow a lot of improvisation and uh, he allowed uh, Lee Ermey. 50% of the that stuff was him just making stuff up. Uh, the one that really got Kubrick going, they actually ruined a take, was when the first time he looked at Pyle and said, uh, you're so ugly, you could be a modern masterpiece. And uh, that really got him going. So yeah, made the film. They filmed the, uh, they filmed the war stuff first, then went back and shot the training stuff. Um, so that way they could shave the heads and not have to wait for people's hair to grow. Um, Lee Ermey got into a pretty bad car wreck, broke a lot of his ribs. They had to put production on hold for five months for him to repair, um, and which caused a lot of strife in the crew and the people. And as usual, nothing can go as planned, but Kubrick's idea of what he wants and how he wants it continued to push the project forward. And, uh, yeah, released it and it was released to mixed reviews. Uh, the audiences ate it up. It was a big uh, Vietnam War movie time when this movie came out. Uh, Platoon had just come out like six months before it. Heartbreak Ridge, and then a, a year later was De Palma's uh, Vietnam movie. Um, but yeah, there's lots of Vietnam films happening at that time, so I think it was the perfect time to release one. Um, and as usual, you know, he compared and uh you know was a little little upset that his movie was being shoehorned in with all these others but he considered his more superior because it wasn't about vietnam it was about something else and uh yeah and uh it did financially well and he got an academy award nod for adapted screenplay didn't win but got the nod well not only did had a lot of vietnam war movies come out in that time but platoon had actually won best picture just a, a few months before this movie was released so the mm -hmm. comparisons were going to be inevitable uh, to that film yeah and i i think it probably had an impact on kubrick's um interest in making the arian papers later in his career because that was going to be his next movie was a holocaust movie and when he heard that there were other holocaust movies mm -hmm. in development um he moved on to another project yeah, I think, yeah, this this left a sour taste in his mouth with that. I think the only quote he's on record saying about Platoon was, uh, I feared my M16 sound effects weren't that great, and then I watched Platoon, and they had the same sound effects. So there's that. 
And that was all he said about Platoon. <laughs> well, I actually uh, watched Platoon last That's night. Great. I hadn't seen it in a really long time, and so I was curious to compare it. Um, well, we can talk about it later um, on in the in the podcast, but um, but it, mm-hmm. it it is a very interesting comparison because they are uh, entirely different movies about entirely different things. Did did you? find out anything about why he had such a modest budget after the success of the shining i was i was really surprised that he wasn't just you know oh, do whatever you want here we'll throw as much money at you as possible for this um from what i read he uh he, no one no one would touch any of his movies until they were complete mm. um he had to no one wanted uh doctor strange love no one wanted clockwork orange um, okay. And this was another one. And at that point, he operated. He liked operating that way. He would secure yeah. his own finances. Sure. And he got mad. He would get mad when he saw excess and bloat, like in terms of how the money was being spent. Uh, I mm-hmm. think he was famously quoted as saying, "They don't know how to live like monks. No one knows how to live like a monk." And he was just talking about just being as as cheap as possible and getting the most out of your money. So. Right. Yeah. Well, he only wanted to okay. focus on his work ultimately, like people who, uh, you know, wined and dined all the time um, were not of interest to him. Uh, and, and yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think he rightfully knew that uh, if he could make the movie for less, he was going to do that because ultimately that meant that there he would have more control over the product and, and more flexibility yeah. in terms of the movie that he wanted to make. I mean, if this movie had cost twice as much, would he have been able to shut down produ- production when Arlie Ermey got injured? You know, who knows? Um, so I right. think that's probably um, part of it. Um, but but so before we get into talking more about the movie, Doug, what do you, what it, was your uh, response? What was your response the first time you saw this, and did it did it change uh, this time? What do, what do you think of of Full Metal Jacket? Um, I mean, I, I again, I saw this, I, I think I was in high school, and it was a time where I, I feel like I saw this when I first saw Platoon, and when I watched a movie like Hamburger Hill, speaking of Stephen Weber from The, the Shining, uh, Stephen King's The Shining, <laughs> um, you know, and I, I really didn't like this movie. Like, uh, I really enjoyed, as a lot of people do, the first half. You know, the first half, the, the boot camp stuff, I really loved it. I thought that was fantastic. But when it came to the battle scenes, when it came to actually being in Vietnam, I didn't think it held up to Platoon at all. I thought it was rather bland. You know, I, I thought it was pretty uninteresting. It didn't have all those. And now I, I realize how much they are, you know, cliches that Platoon has and how, uh, other Vietnam movies are just blood and guts and constant gunfire. And, and this just seems so different to me. I mean, the fact that it's city fighting. I mean, I don't, I don't know if there's any other Vietnam film that's ever been made where they're fighting in a city, yeah, quote unquote city. Out, yeah. yeah. I mean, everything else is in the jungle. So, you know, when I was younger, it felt different. It, it did not appeal to me. I, I really didn't like it. Um, and I had not seen this since I was probably 15 or 16 years old. Um, I still do prefer the first half to the second half. Um, but the second half to me felt much more satisfying and much more, quote unquote, real this time than it did when I was younger. And again, I think it really does have to do with the fact that I have 
revisited some of those films made around the same time platoon hamburger hill just to just to mention those two because i have seen those probably within the past five years and they're not as good yeah i mean they're they're not as good as i remember and i am a unironic charlie sheen fan i really do <laughs> like charlie sheen um but that movie it's it's just every war cliche you can possibly think of just jammed into this just violent nonsense fest <laughs> and this didn't feel like that again like i said i still like the first half better than the second half um but like most of kubrick's films i like this a lot more than i did when i originally saw it travis what do you think um i oh it's hard i uh i didn't in i don't know if i didn't enjoy the film or we've watched so many Kubrick films at this point that it was so easy to decode what he was trying to convey that I wasn't, I felt very, it felt shallower than his last few films. Mm. I don't know if it's just my experience now because I, like Doug, I watch this, I watched this when I was younger. Um, I totally only liked the first half. The second half felt flat to me. Um, I remember talking to my dad. My dad was the one, I think, who showed me this in Platoon. And because uh, he he was in the Vietnam War, and he said uh, the opening of Full Metal Jacket was exactly what it was like in basic training, and but Platoon was what it was like over there. Um, and I'm sure he was more referring to the camaraderie aspect of Platoon and the kind of like you know the, the unknown and what's going on and yeah. a bunch of young kids completely mm-hmm. bes- you know beside themselves, which. Kubrick spent most of his time with that feeling of youth and not knowing what you're getting into in, you know, basic training versus when they show up in the second half of the movie, they feel like they all feel, they all feel like frat boys on campus to me. They all feel like they're just like, everyone knows what it is. They're the seniors this year. So they're just kind of like walking around owning everything. And that felt like really strange. And some of the, critics that's the that's the the problem that they leveled against the film was that um you're taking someone who uh you know oliver stone who's making this personal film about his time in vietnam versus stanley kubrick who's never seen a war and how could he know anything about vietnam um and they kind of took it at that face value and i think that's where a lot of the criticism lied Mm -hmm. so this this time viewing um I felt that the opening stuff was very well done and very formal, and I liked that. And I liked it in the second half, the way that the film is broken apart. And it's very informal in a lot of its aspects. It's very dirty, very rough, um, which it's been a long time since we've had a very rough Kubrick. Um, Not since his noir films have we had him, like, really letting the camera go a little wild and nothing's as composed as it should be. Um, So I'm still kind of on the fence. I was hoping to be able to talk about it with you guys and kind of see where I lie because I can't tell, like I said, if I'm just – I picked up on all of his stuff way too easily this time, his duality of man, his – 
men, children behaving like men, like that kind of aspect of the film just really came out really strong this time. So I th- is it because he literally yelled duality oh, of men? <laughs> well, of course. I mean, that was the first thing he said to Michael Hare when he was talking about right. like writing the script. He goes, "Hey, have you read Young? What do you think about this whole duality man shadow thing? You yeah. buy into that? I'd like to make a movie about that." And that was kind of the impetus for the story he was looking for. So yeah, I'm hoping to talk about it more. So right now I feel like I'm on the fence, but I think it's because of my my interaction with the film. And I watched it twice. I watched it once to just kind of get my childhood nostalgia of seeing this when I was like in like eighth grade yeah. out of my system. Mm-hmm. And then I watched it again to kind of really try to get a deep read into it. And I found that I couldn't go deeper than just kind of like the basics of what the film is presenting. So Matt, what did you think? What, what was your feelings on this viewing? Yeah, this is uh this is a complicated movie for me as well. Um, and part of that is the long relationship that I've had with it. Um, I think, you know, the one thing I would say that I kind of disagree with you on is that I think there is a lot of looseness in A Clockwork Orange. Uh, there's obviously mm-hmm. some very formal elements in that movie, but there there are um, scenes and stretches that feel more improvisational. And I definitely got that feeling from the second half of this movie. Um, and those both of those movies are big guy middle school movies um and you know i watched this movie in middle school Mm -hmm. uh it kind of just lumped it in with um the other war movies that i had seen at the time um you know there's a lot of dangerous stuff going on in this movie quote unquote dangerous stuff that appeals to um boys of that age um whether it's the Mm -hmm. actual war stuff all the way to racist jokes or insults being hurled at each other uh and so that all that stuff is kind of just uh it 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 feels like something you shouldn't be watching when you're 13 or 14 um and i think you know we can talk more about that as we go on but i think as i got older i started to see a little bit more of the deeper message of the movie um and it still feels a little murky to me. Like it doesn't, it feels uh, like even the, even the first half in the training, it almost feels like his message is so obvious, but at the same time, it's kind of almost dangerously opaque. Like, because it's, it would be so easy for somebody uh, to just, really think of it as a uh, recruitment video. I mean, like for boys, teenage boys watching that section, like Arlie Ermey is so appealing and so funny. And like, you know, that, that aspect of it doesn't seem as dangerous and destructive from a perspective of presenting male masculinity and sort of the development of that or the the promotion of that into creating killers as it as it should seem um but at the same time that was kubrick's entire mo right was like presenting trying as best he could to present things as they were rather than making a moral judgment on them um 
And that just makes me feel like, well, then, like, was this just maybe the wrong movie for Kubrick um, to make? Or is there a deeper message here that I'm not fully understanding um, in the same way that I wonder that about Lolita to a certain degree of like, is there something going on here below the surface that maybe I just haven't cracked yet? No, I can see that. And I think it felt to me a lot like Kubrick, you can see it's clear in the opening half of the film, the first half of the film that this was his, this was the thing he liked about the book or he liked about the process. I mean, cause really he really spends a lot of time in that process of becoming a soldier, which, which a lot of films just, you know, in 10 minutes, they're at the war. You do mm-hmm. the quick little shave your head, so doing some push-ups in the rain, and then uh, next thing you know, you're stepping off a plane in Vietnam. And he, you could see that this was the thing that he liked. Um, I read a lot recently about his love of language and how much he, like as much as he doesn't use a lot of you know dialogue in his films, relying on the image to tell the story, um, he as a person enjoyed... Uh, listening to people talk and listening to language and I think this is what he enjoyed about this film like this was his interest and so he spent a lot of time on it and yeah I I totally agree with you Matt I think Lee Ermey is the he is this is the protagonist of the first half of the film Joker is there and you get a little bit of his character development and you're watching Pyle just deteriorate and just like in The Shining where the deterioration happens in a snap, like he just needs that slight push to go crazy, um, you see Pyle just kind of be resistant to indoctrination. And then it isn't until betrayal that he fully commits. And you can see it's committal for the wrong reasons. He has a goal now. He wants to seek revenge. And that's his, his goal for uh, his committing to... Uh, becoming a killing machine which is is it's a weird message to send because really you know you you are it's a promotional video for wanting to be uh, a soldier Mm -hmm. and we all played it like when i was in eighth grade or i think it was sixth grade when we saw the sixth or seventh grade um we we all were playing vietnam after that we all dug out our dad's old uh, you know, uniform pieces or parts or shirts and, you know, dressed like that and ran around the woods with our our fake guns and did stuff. I mean, I remember in we in seventh grade we had to uh we had to care for a bag of flour like it was a baby. And I think <laughs> I think everyone named their babies after characters from both Full Metal Jacqueline and Platoon. I remember one kid, Sean Rivera, his baby was named Animal Mother, which I thought was just ridiculous. But at the time, that was so cool. And it is. It's that it's that it's that uh, building what what it means to be masculine and getting rid of all of your tender, caring and feeling, which he shows very clearly by letting Joker be kind of a mentor and tender and caring towards Leonard and then making him just destroy that feeling. And get rid of that feeling to become a soldier, which is, you know, I think is the the most horrible part of that movie is the moment where Matthew Modine has to make the choice if he's going to participate in the uh, correction of uh, Leonard with the uh, towel party. Mm -hmm. And you see him make that commitment and he hits him once 
and realizes that he likes it and then just beats the crap out of him, which is horrible. Yeah. I think that's the that's the part of the that's the message of the first half of the film is it's easy to become a killer. And yeah. that goes into a later theme that I'll talk about as we move on. But uh, Doug, what do you got to say? No, I agree 100 percent. And and again, like you had said, nobody else was doing this with these Vietnam films. Nobody showed basic training. Nobody showed boot camp. Um, and, and I remembered it being, strange enough, a larger part of the film than it actually is. Uh, I put it in and I sat down and I went, OK, we got two hours. And boy, when that 45 minute mark hit and we yeah. were away from there. I was so bummed out. Like I was like, I know I only thought we had 15 more minutes, but I, in a way, I, I really wish that that had been the film. Um, I, I And again, I said that it, I enjoyed it more than I did the, the first time I saw it, and, and that is true 100%. But the relationships between the characters once they were in Vietnam, the acting i think we could talk about that the line like the performances i was not in the the use of slow motion the i'm gonna say the overuse of slow motion once it came to those battle scenes i i loved the first half of this movie and why couldn't that have been the film that's so powerful it's way more powerful in my opinion than anything to be honest that comes after that well, I think there's more to reckon with in the second half of this movie, regardless of, of and there are defenders of the, the second half. And you're right, mm-hmm. by the way, it's almost two thirds of the movie ultimately is in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, but but I think even people who who are who defend the second half, uh, I think, would acknowledge that there is a lot more moving parts and uh, the the first half is very straightforward and very clean. Um, you know, I almost feel like in a way this movie is kind of the reverse of Psycho in the sense of the first, the, the, the story that you actually, and I'm going to spoil Psycho here. I'm sorry, you guys. <laughs> um, <laughs> All right. I'm taking the headphones off. That's it. <laughs> um, the, the, the story that you are following with Janet Lee is not that interesting. Like it's a pretty straightforward sort of thriller story. Like she steals money from her employer. What's going to happen? Um, so when she's murdered and you move to a much more interesting story with a much more compelling sort of antagonist slash protagonist, um, you, you don't miss the, the thing that the left, the crazy left unexpected left turn is taking you away from. But I think when you lose Pyle, who is kind of the heart and soul of the first act, and you lose Lee Ermey, who is the most animated and entertaining character in the movie, um, you you kind of lose all gravity in the movie, and there's not really anything to grab onto. Like, I don't even know if I really oh. even noticed that this was Matthew Modine the first like three times I saw this movie, like it was just some white guy. Like I have no idea. I had no idea. You know, I didn't even make the connection. And like, I don't know for me, like his performance, I think he hits the right tone if I'm paying attention to him, but he's rather bland. And I kind of feel like he sort of fades into the background. And I think it hurts the movie because 
it is ultimately, and it took me many viewings to realize this, it is ultimately a movie about his moral evolution, you know, from the mm-hmm. beginning of the movie to the end. Mm. But I feel like you're constantly losing him to more interesting and um, and seductive characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's he's personally my biggest problem with the movie because if 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 Kubrick's idea is that Modine is this empty vessel which we as the viewer can put ourselves into, okay, but he is not a compelling character. Yeah. And like you said, he's continuously surrounded by people who are far more interesting than he is. And the idea, and I, I had read about Anthony Michael Hall as well. I kind of would have loved to have seen that. I looked at it this viewing this time as, you know, a boy playing a man. Like he's trying to be tough and he's using his John Wayne lines to show how tough he is. And all of his toughness comes in the form of his accent and pretending you never see him actually being like the person who steps out and really puts himself out there for a lot of things and it's a it's a strange it is a strange performance because a lot of that dialogue in which he is um exchanging with other people it sounds hollow and it like i think you were alluding earlier uh uh, Doug about like the performances and the line in the line readings and a lot of that does feel very like when you see Matthew Mo- Joker and Cowboy reuniting for the first time in a long time it like it feels like they're reading from the page the lines they need to say to each other and but you know it could work if you really want to stretch it it could work as in we don't really have a relationship like all we know is that we both went through this horrible thing together and so now we have to go through our lines of the only thing that we ever talked about in a bathroom one time that we were alone together. Yeah. You know, there is that level of that that you could uh, uh, level against that performance. But it's hard. It is a it is a uh, it is an empty vessel. And his performance is strange to try to be the person to connect to him. And it doesn't help that weird, tiny bits of voiceover that were given throughout the film like that. Like you're like, Oh, we are going to get into this character. This is his story, but then we don't at all. You know, he says Paris, we're, we're on Paris Island. And then later he says, we're here. Like it's, it's, it's like something he he serves the purpose of a title card and it's uh, a, it's It's this weird exposition. Yeah. It almost, it's like the, the Harrison Ford voiceover in Blade Runner red. It's just like, (laughs) so like deadpan, like somebody is forcing me to say this about what we're doing right now. I always like to picture Harrison Ford getting like a little drunk to do that line because you could see he's like, I don't care. (laughs) Oh yeah. No, he purposely read it bad and so that they wouldn't use it. Yeah. And here it feels like there's, I mean, that was obviously intentional on Kubrick's part because we know from, uh, well, even Matthew Modine is more uh, endearing in the the on-camera interview and more animated um, in his voiceover. So we know he can do it. And we know from Kubrick, from Clockwork Orange, that he can have a charismatic narrator. Um, So it's obviously intentional what he's doing. But there is something very hard about making your protagonist the person who is above it all you know who's better than what's happening on screen because like it's that's a very tough place to be and i mean i think where when you compare his character to barry Lyndon, which is another example of a situation where 
uh, all the people around him are more kind of, um, they have more agency and they're um, more animated than he is. Um, he is constantly striving to sort of, I guess I will, I'm, I, I will say, I guess that, I guess they're both trying to find their humanity in a terrible situation, but it feels much more, um, real and, uh, in, and engaging as a viewer in Barry Lyndon than it does in Full Metal Jacket, uh, with Matthew Modine, where it just feels like he's, he seems like the sidekick character, not the, the main character in the movie. Yeah, and I think yeah. and I think that's because of that whole like we're losing the two most interesting characters in the first yeah. third of the movie and then we're mm-hmm. now oh, Joker's this Joker's the star of this film? Okay, I would have paid more attention <laughs> if I knew he was the star of this film because you have that uh you know, in the in the first half you have a lot of Kubrick's uh, interests right there in that beginning. You have his love of procedure and the love of order and the love of um, words and language. You have his uh, his father son type relationships that he likes to play out. Um, you have all of his themes in that first half of the film, like really clearly, and it's very mm-hmm. like you yeah, know it couldn't that be is, more Freudian. I no, mean, yeah, it couldn't be more right. Freudian, and it couldn't be more you know Kubrickian. It is his long shots, soft lighting coming from outside, and all of that intensity that he loves to have in his in his pictures. And so when you have all that stuff just go away, it is, it is, it is shocking and it is jarring. And I don't, I don't, and and to know that he filmed them out of order with the war first and then he went into here, it really makes me wonder like, uh, what he did in, in the editing process to change kind of like how his story was being told, because I have to assume there was a lot more Matthew Modine voiceover recorded. And these were the parts that made the cut. Yeah, he, yeah. he cut yeah, out possibly. Some, he cut out a lot of because the the book is is first person narration, um, uh-huh. and then the the script actually has lots more of it. Um, and the, even the like final lines because Michael Herr had um, written an introduction, uh, I think maybe to it to the screenplay or something uh, or to the book, um, saying that that the the final narration that we hear was not intended to be the final narration there was a whole long stretch of narration that ended the movie that was no longer um like that Cooper got rid of and instead went to that and in the book they sing the Mickey Mouse song but it's like halfway through it's not at the end of the movie so uh he definitely did a lot there in terms of I mean, each each little thing in the Vietnam section really feels like a vignette. It doesn't necessarily feel like any of them. He he probably could have reordered almost all of that in terms of we're not really seeing Matthew Modine's character have any sort of character arc in Vietnam until the final section with the with the sniper. Oh yeah, until the final moment, yeah. like until he's in that building. I don't feel like he's changed as a character at all i really don't feel that there's any evolution in that character and the 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 second part you know when they're fighting like to hear that he filmed that first like i understand from a technical aspect as far as the hair and everything yeah it makes sense but that's really shocking to me because it, it feels 
that does not feel like a Kubrick film. Mm. It, it, there's, it's, it's insanely unartistic, if that makes sense. Like I, I love the shot of the street scene when the you know prostitutes there and it's this nice low angle. Like that looks really great, but so much of it looks like every other war film from that era that I've seen. And even the I, even the scenes where the soldiers are sort of giving interviews, I was shocked that that didn't look different, that they're talking to the camera, that we're seeing it through the camera, that, that is shooting those interviews, and it looks just as nice and as clean and as pristine as the rest. Like, why was there no grainy filter or anything like that? Or why wasn't it shot from the side where we see the, the soldiers talking to another camera? It... It was perplexing at times watching this going, this is a Kubrick film? I mean, after The Shining, Barry Lyndon, Clockwork Orange, 2001, and and later Eyes Wide Shut, this doesn't look or feel like any of that. But the first half sort of does. Yeah, and it's funny because we're talking about how we can't connect to our the Matthew Modine as a character. Uh, one, of the first, one of the things he said to Michael Herr, uh, it was... Uh, it looks like I'm making another who do you root for movie. Like he, he was very clear that he didn't know like <laughs> who, the, who the character was that we're supposed to be rooting for in this film. And I think that was his, you know, taking a step back and being trying to be as neutral as possible in terms of like mm-hmm. how these people develop. And I find in that it's, it's hard because it's hard to remove your emotion from something that ended up being really emotional, uh, a really emotional thing in American history, because this is the first war that uh, is considered a loss. This is the first war in which uh, the soldiers were not bandied as heroes when they came back. They were looked down upon. This is the first war that there was lots of, uh, you know, not the first war that did this, but there was uh, once they discovered the machinations behind the scenes of keeping information away from the American public, there was a huge amount of distrust in our government that sprang up from this. So there's lots of emotions tied to this war and to look at it from such an unemotional uh, place. It's kind of mm-hmm. hard to kind of to rectify that in your brain. Like, you know, there's no real sense of either heroism going on in the film or and he's you know and you can see he's stripping so many of the cliches from war movies out of the movie but at the same time he's leaving so many in that i don't understand i found <laughs> i found the interview stuff me to too. be boring and yeah, pointless me too. yeah i found that the shot that he has a two people saying don't look at the camera and the camera moving past them that was an apocalypse now and he knows it was an apocalypse now why are they Mm -hmm. doing it like you know there were so many things that i was surprised that he he did you know especially knowing from watching a lot of his films and reading a lot of the stuff he's written about him he was not known for he wanted to do new things and push things further and i don't think he did that here i think he settled it felt it felt weird it didn't feel like his other films in which he was trying to push the boundaries of the genre, try to do something new. And I think the things where he did push in the, in the genre, he, it was too, it was a little too cold for what the audiences wanted and what I wanted, I think. Mm -hmm. And it, and the things that did stick out were all in that first 45 minutes where that was the thing that I really 
clung to because it is very um, emotional and emotionless at the same time. It's sterile, it's cold, but it is also brutal and humanizing. And watching people get their humanity stripped away is really hard to to watch when you're when you you know when you're you know. So it becomes something that's. It's weird. It, there is that if he's trying to yeah. so show the duality of man in this, um, I don't. I think one side is winning over the other, and I yeah. don't know why. And again, you want to take me. You want to. You want to take me out of a film, or you want to take me out of a a stressful situation. Give me slow motion, and that was the thing that puzzled me most. Slow motion, blood packs. Like, imagine if they had been beating pile with that soap and it had been slow motion like that would be comical and that's what i felt in those scenes when they finally get the sniper and they shoot her and it's again slow motion like it feels so overtly and annoyingly cinematic at those times where it it doesn't feel as intense as it did when let's say you know the medic i guess he was the medic or maybe they just called him doc the guy was on the ground he started to he tried to point out where the sniper was and then he was shot I mean, that was real time. That was fast. That was intense. But pretty much any other time, guys are shot in this. It is slow motion, and it's aggravating and pulls me right out. Yeah, of and the blood just sort of bursts out. Like, it's very unrealistic. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's highly, highly stylized. Uh, and I, yeah. I, I always kind of wondered if that was, like, p- part of the, Kubrick's response to the response to Clockwork Orange and sort of his negative... Uh, the people's negative response to the way he portrayed Mm. violence in that movie. Um, And he really wanted to make it clear, like this is like a terrible thing what's happening right now. And I'm going to show you how terrible it is by putting it in slow motion and having the blood explode out Um, because it is very jarring the way that's done Mm -hmm. Um, and almost feels dated, which is not something I would ever use about any other Kubrick movie because I think his cinematic techniques have held up really well. I agree that it kind of just takes you out of the movie. Um, but what you were saying, Travis, about about this movie just not really feeling like a a Vietnam movie, like I feel like he it was pretty uninterested in Vietnam. Like I almost feel like this story was interesting to him on a deeper level uh, that had nothing to do with the fact that the subject matter was Vietnam. Yeah, I, I I can definitely see that, but I just don't, I don't know why. Oh no, I agree with you. And yeah, uh, yeah, and I, yeah. I, mm-hmm. I, what I'm, what I'm saying is like it feel like when I'm watching this movie, it's like when you, well, I'll I'll bring up Platoon because I think it 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 is a worthwhile comparison because they are such wildly different movies. Well, first of all, like we've been talking about how the the narration is ineffective in this movie. The narration in Platoon is the worst thing ever. Oh, it's so <laughs> over, too much. It is. It's He's awful. He's writing letters to his grandma. Like, to his give grandma. Me a break. <laughs> and then the end narration in Platoon, he literally says, like, we're, we, like, he says, we weren't fighting the enemy. We were fighting ourselves. <laughs> and the enemy is within us. Like, how did this movie become a movie? <laughs> I can't. The greatest monster is man. Get it? Oh my god, it was so bad. Uh, but the the rest of the movie, I think, is is pretty solid um, in terms of 
what Oliver Stone is really just interested in trying to present the experience as realistically as he could, but within the context of a accessible Hollywood movie. So I think for people Mm -hmm. who lived through that uh, war, I'm not surprised that your dad would have that response. Um, If you're used to conventional movies and you don't maybe notice or care if there are sort of those cliches or that conventional story structure and and the really like strongly defined good and evil of um, Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe's characters, um, you would see something that looked incredibly like what you experienced and was paying tribute to your uh, sacrifice and to the difficult uh, ordeal that you went through in your life. Um, but as a movie, it's kind of just like okay. Like I get, I guess, <laughs> um, I mean, it's almost a trying <laughs> to do what steel helmet did. Um, mm. and Sam Fuller actually, uh, watched full metal jacket and referred to it as a recruiting, uh, video, um, and <clears throat> really hated it. Um, and steel helmet was the, at least the, the first movie that I've seen, there's a few before that, like battleground and things like that. But like, Steel Helmet was the first movie that I feel like I've seen where it was like, I don't care what anybody thinks of this movie except for people who went through this war with me and other people who have fought in wars because I'm making this movie for them. And Platoon felt like that too, but it just didn't get there in the sense of it was so beholden to cinematic and particularly Hollywood conventions that it never really felt like you were living this experience you were continually watching Mm -hmm. it on screen and i think full metal jacket is almost the opposite like it you you feel sort of the emotional weight particularly in the first half of the experience that these people are going through as a very real thing but the literal experience that they're going through on screen seems very false and i don't know like for me the sets in the sniper scene are really cool um, and feel real. The The base camp, like, it just seems so obvious that they plopped some palm trees down and, like, mm-hmm. put a had, like, a helicopter going in the background. Like, it kind of, like, yeah. I watched it with my wife and she, uh, like, really felt like it was, like, um, the play in Rushmore. Like, it felt like, the, <laughs> it felt like that part. You know what I mean? Like, it doesn't feel like they're really in Vietnam. Because they're not really in Vietnam. Semper Fi. And she didn't know, by the way, that it had not been shot in Vietnam. She didn't know it had been shot in England. Um, oh, that's that's great. And so, I mean, it, it, yeah. it does have that kind of feeling of, like, they're trying to replicate this thing, but they aren't really. But also, they don't really care that much because that's not really what they're interested in. You know, like yeah. he's not interested in replicating the experience. Um, I, I have a, I have a question for you guys. This has just been formulating mm-hmm. in my brain as we're talking about this. What if what he's, what do you guys think of the possibility that what he's trying to do, is just really, make fun of the John Wayne Green Beret type, action, uh, Vietnam movie. Like, what if all the things that we're talking about as cliches that didn't work for us, the super slow motion, the overdoing it of blood, the high drama of that scene and all that business, you know, with all the cliches of the stand up interviews and the, the, mm-hmm. the girl, like, 
what if that is all just him like just really saying you know just just an indictment of those types of movies and he's working within that framework to show us that no one's really a hero those heroes don't exist like that that could be something that would play into his way of uh of talking about things i would believe what do you guys yeah. think about that kind of concept i mean i i think i think that's possible um I don't know who he's doing that for other than himself. Like, I don't know how many people are going to read that into this. And I, I think it's, if that was his intent, I don't even think it's done all that well. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, it would have to be remarkably subtle, I guess. It could. Yeah. We're just not getting it, guys. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not saying that Kubrick that is not. so ahead of us in our levels right. that we're just like but, totally not getting it. Well, right, but is it subtle if he has so many John Wayne impressions? In well, yeah, I think the richness of, of this of uh, his other films sort of makes you wonder when you watch a movie like this or a movie like Clockwork, like, is there something here mm-hmm. that you're not seeing? Because I think... You know, they're still really well-made films for the most part. I mean, right. there mm-hmm. there are some things I would I, I could definitely take or leave the interviews here, but the sniper sequence uh, is done really well. The and then the first third of the movie is very much like Kubrick. I mean, the the depth of field in that sequence is insane. Like the yeah. the the number of like other platoons that he has going training in the background of shots for no reason like there's no reason for him to be doing that but they're they're jogging they're climbing they're doing all sorts of things in the background of 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 the it it just makes it look like the training is going on forever and there's an and it's a constant reminder that there's just an endless number of these kids that they can get and train to be killers and ship overseas and Maybe some of them will make it back, but who really cares? Because we've got 40 more groups just like them lining up to get right. their heads shaved. Like that aspect of it is really impressive. And the natural lighting in this movie is super awesome. Um, it's really cool. And the the way he lights uh, through the windows in the training sequence. Um, but also like the the fluorescent lighting is really awesome too like the the shot he mm. he starts the shot this shot at nighttime as Lee Ermy comes in to wake them up before the light turns on so you just see this like lightning bolt as it sort of snaps on mm-hmm. um stuff like that is like just very impressive and formal and kubrick and so then when you get to like, oh, he's using these boots are made for walking right after they shot, they, he shot himself in the head. Like, mm-hmm. you do start to wonder, like, okay, like, that seems really obvious to me, but maybe there's something else going on here. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about the music. What did you guys think of it? At, at times, at times, I, I feel like the, you know, the music cues, the, the popular music of the era um, I didn't notice it, and other times it seemed a little jarring. And 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 I think you know these boots were made for walking. Certainly, I was like, oh my god, okay, uh, that makes sense, great. But boy, it seems really obvious. I I don't know what you thought of the. Uh, I guess it would be more the soundtrack. 
I, it was jarring at first because, you know, after watching these in chronological order to just all of a sudden have popular music in one of his films mm-hmm. was like, you know, it was very hard. It was like, whoa, I forgot that this movie, movie is, is of its time because it has the Vietnam soundtrack, all those popular songs from that time period. And it was very it was very jarring at first. But, yeah, I mean, they're all super on the nose. Like none of the mm-hmm. songs are subtle in any, in any way whatsoever. They're very on the nose from the opening, uh, "Goodbye, Sweetheart," "Hello, Vietnam," getting his head mm-hmm. shaved, yeah. the boots made from walking, "Wooly Bully," "Surfing Bird," like all those songs are very like very very specific <laughs> and very like very on the nose. Like there is no you know there's you know yeah. it could be irony but it didn't feel like it it felt just like well, you know, surfing bird is, is so is. on the nose that i'm like god like did he <laughs> was it irony like it's like oh he shot somebody and then he goes woohoo and then you hear surfing bird like <laughs> yeah that's what i felt too i was like oh i all right and the, the inter- so happy that he shot those guys i guess the interview that i read like he said like he goes i wanted them i wanted you guys to feel the elation that these guys felt that they survived another thing so here's the, the most fun elated song you could possibly have at this time period <laughs> that 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 i think is probably the move the one of the moments in this movie there's lots of moments where characters do things that i think are dangerous in terms of how people especially young boys are going to respond to it um the the most the most notorious i think being the the uh gunner out the helicopter saying get some as he mows down innocent women and children um but i think uh the in terms of what kubrick does the uh as a as the filmmaker um the surfing bird moment to me is like what were you thinking because if you i mean he knows the power of of movies and to me that is just like pure like touchdown dance that that sequence yeah yeah and it, it kind of like uh, it it sort of turned my stomach this time watching it because it does it, it comes off in entirely not the way that he intended and i totally understand like you don't like i don't need to see the guy like shoot the person and then be like, Oh my God, what have I done? And they have like, you know, a sad right. song playing over it. Um, and he walks up and he like sees the person like has a, uh, high school diploma in their hand that they had just graduated the day before. Um, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't need any, like, I don't, I don't want any of that stuff, but like, I'm, I still like give me at least something that yeah. isn't going to be, super easy to misinterpret and use in the entirely wrong way. I mean, there were probably two to three times in this movie when I watching this alone audibly said, fuck you movie. (laughs) And it all had to do with just how horribly racist this was at times. Mm. Like when that guy steals his camera and then just does karate moves, I was like, come on, are we doing this? Are we really doing this in this movie? <laughs> I really like the idea like, of Doug just home alone watching movies and just being like, you motherfucking movie. God damn it. Seriously. <laughs> and when Animal Mother just sits down and goes, thank God for sickle cell. I'm like, what? Yeah. What? Yeah. And this is stuff again. You know, as a 13, 14 year old right. kid, I this went right over my head. I, I didn't get it at all. And that's, 
that's why these moments seem so much more shocking and so much more egregious now. Yeah, and like toss him a basketball. I mean, like the yeah. and that that stuff. There is some of that stuff in Platoon as well. Although it mostly the the super racist stuff mostly comes from the Tom Berenger character, um, mm-hmm. and and obviously like there was casual racism, of course, in Vietnam, and they that was one of the ways that they bonded because they're they're young boys too, you know. So like making racist sure. jokes back and forth is pro- is part of that. Um, but but there's absolutely a a, um, a danger in portraying that um, mm-hmm. for comedic effect uh, in particular. Oh yeah, yeah. The feeling that racism is okay. Hey, it's okay. See, we're all fun. We're yeah, all friends. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's this is and this is what's wrong with our country right now because we have a whole generation of older people that mm-hmm. survived during that time that are now saying, "What do you mean it's wrong? We're all friends. It's all good." Yeah, it's just a joke. Just like, we're just joking. It's not a yeah. joke. It's so bad. Yeah, there's lots of there's lots of things in that, and I don't know if that's you know Kubrick's love of the salty language and trying to make it as realistic as possible from that time, but it just and I you know I try to watch movies thinking about the time that they were made in or the time that they're set in, but it's hard. It's hard for this movie. There's just between that kind of just flagrant racism and just its horrible sexism. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know it's 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 yeah. a hard pill to swallow. This film, it's you know watching it and thinking about it. When I was, I watched this movie when I was in sixth or seventh grade, like in my formative sure. developmental brain mm-hmm. years, and thinking about what it is to be male and seeing mm-hmm. this. Uh, I I'm not pulling like the duality of man and all that idea of what it's like to lose your moral compass and make a choice that puts you into this new category of killer. I'm, you know, you're thinking about all this other stuff of like, Oh, look how great these guys are. And that's the wrong message completely in this film, which is the same message that was misconstrued in Clockwork Orange. Right. Which is why it's kind of interesting that he, fell into that trap because it did seem to affect him so much uh, after Clockwork Orange um, to the point where he had the movie removed from circulation in the country that he lived in. Um, mm. This does this does seem like the, the right time to point out the absolute worst uh, example of um, the, the way in which this movie can be misused. It might be the worst example of the way any movie can be well, I shouldn't say that because the birth of the oh. nation literally created the KKK. But are we are we going to talk about the speech about where our certain snipers? No, came but from that is uh, that would be number two in this movie. <laughs> um, the uh, no, the the absolute worst thing that uh, that was created because this movie can be misinterpreted is the two live crew song "Me So Horny," which <laughs> is taking a the like just the. A horrible experience. Like we literally bombed this country, you know, to uh, to unrecognizable degree. Uh, have forced these women to prostitute themselves, and this movie is presenting this. Um, and I do think it's at least trying to kind of maybe say that they are that this is a bad thing, and like show how horrible this is that we are doing this to these people i think you're giving it way too much credit because i think it's played for laughs both well times. it definitely oh, is yeah, played for laughs times. uh from the perspective of two live crew who used it as a sample 
uh, in a in a song uh, in in term for sure as a comedic moment. Um, Not just a sample, Matt. A hook. Yeah, it was the oh, hook yeah. of the yeah, song. <laughs> and I mean the the. That to me, like, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if Kubrick ever, I couldn't, I, I didn't actually even look it up. I don't know if Kubrick ever commented on that, but like, if I made something like that and was presenting, you know, and there's really, there's only three women in this whole movie. Um, t- two of them mm-hmm. are prostitutes yeah. and one of them is, is murdered, uh, at the end and is a, you know, 12 year old girl. Um, and if I made that this movie and 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 put those scenes in there and somebody made a song like that i would definitely be like fuck what are you doing like no this is terrible but i mean it's it's so easy to just go there um from this movie i mean especially like the combination of of her lines and the and the the you know oh i'm not going to do it with a black man because he's got a penis that's too big and then he whips out his penis like the whole thing is played for laughs in a way that manages to be um, equally sexist and racist. And it's just, it's a beautiful oh, yeah. thing. Well, and... when you, when you talk about that scene with the, the black guy, before I saw this again, I would have bet you any sum of money that that scene was not in a Stanley Kubrick movie. Like I remembered <laughs> that scene distinctly and I'm like, Oh, it was probably just some, from some trashy Vietnam movie I watched one day. <laughs> I was shocked that that was in this movie. If anyone says to me to Buku, I know exactly what they're talking that's about. That's true. Like that's, that's, is that's crazy. Yeah. That's how like anyone of our generation will know what that means. <laughs> and then, you know, building off of what you were just saying, Matt, like you have that horrible racism on both sides and sexism and then you have a white guy come in, make a horrible, yeah. horrible racist statement, and take the girl without yeah. paying to go do whatever he wants. And there's so many, there's so many bits. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> and he's being, and she's being pimped by a soldier, of a Vietnamese mm-hmm. soldier. So there's so many, like, just life is so cheap here. And it's like it, uh, you can you can you can like negotiate down in price to five dollars for something that is so it's hard. It's a hard thing to deal with. And it's played for laughs. It's played for your light moments. This is our light moment before we go and do more war, which is our heavy moments. And this is like this is not light. This is not fun. It's hard to kind of to move past that when you're watching this movie, uh, especially you know, yeah. And in general, it's hard to move past that. Well, even the heavy moments, though. I mean, Surfing Bird, like, and even at the end, like after he shoots the sniper, he's jumping up and down, partying, um, rafter man. Like they, oh. you know, they're they're there's not really any heavy moments here and i'm not again like i don't want kubrick to tell me how to feel that's what oliver stone is for but i can at least like give me something kubrick give me something i mean in that scene like for some reason i that scene feels emotionally resonant to me i i always liken it to and every every time i see that scene where matthew modine is like his gun jams, which it's weird. I read in a lot of reviews that he froze and didn't fire his gun, but his gun jammed. Yeah. He did try, yeah. and then he had to switch to his mm-hmm. uh, service revolver. But 
that moment of that guy killing something and then celebrating, I all it always makes me rem- remember when I was oh man, I was probably maybe eight, eight, eight or nine. Uh, two of my neighborhood friends, you know, only my friends because of vicinity, not because I chose them to be my friends. But we went to someone's house at one point. We're in the backyard. I come across two of them. They they shoved a uh, firecracker down a snake's mouth and are lighting it on fire. And it bothered me so much. They jump up and they're laughing and smiling and this that's amazing. And I was I like I left because I was crying because I was so bothered by that just violence and celebration, that brutality and celebration. And that always reminds me of that scene mm-hmm. of just that feeling of like that is not something to be super happy about. Like yeah. this is something that is hard. And then it plays out further with that feeling for me of Matthew Modine finally uh, deciding whether he's going to be what's on his helmet or what's on his chest with that, you know, and and doing that act of violence and then blending in with everyone else as they march off into the, into the sunset kind of thing, which is, it's super dark guys. (laughs) Like that ending just makes me feel so bad about everything. Like it's bleak. It's, it's, it's terrible because the enemy is faceless you know the enemy in this film is faceless and then you know at the beginning even the protagonists are just just faceless like there's there's nothing here there's nothing to hold on to there's you know and i know that you know war films i understand you're supposed to root for somebody and i don't want to say you should do that but there there's no one for me to get behind there's no one for me to feel bad for when they're killed there's no one for me to feel happy about that they survived this. I don't care about anyone in this. And and I'm not saying that that's a fault. Maybe that is the purpose of the second half of this film. But it just it, – it ended up feeling empty because of that. Well, I do feel like there – I agree. I mean I definitely don't – feel the deaths of any of the soldiers i think the only i mean i obviously i think pile is is a very it's a very sort of memorable and intense scene oh yeah yeah no um, i'm not talking about the yeah first no no thing. no yeah, I, that's, yeah. That's I mean in the second half i think really only the only the girl at the the sniper at the end um sure. is the only death i really feel um so i i definitely agree with you but i i guess again like it feels like this thing where Kubrick is not especially interested in what is happening on screen as much as he is what's going on beneath the surface. And that I, I, the hard part for me is just figuring out what that is. I mean, I guess that ultimately like the core moral arc of Matthew Modine's character seems like the, the thing about this movie. I mean, mainly just because that's where the movie begins and ends. Um, but you don't really necessarily see that arc. I mean, isn't he just forced in? I mean, I guess the, he's forced into combat simply because he makes another stupid joke. Like, he doesn't um, necessarily evolve in any way to becoming a killer. He's just put into a situation where you're sort of forced to kill. Um, and, and then he doesn't... He only kills out of mercy uh and therefore has he 
truly made the full evolution to right. becoming a soldier, um, be, being born to kill. Uh, you know, I'm not sure. Um, I agree because nothing up to this point seems to have changed his character. So yeah, why do we feel as though this did? Well, I think the only thing that I I th- can think of in terms of how it's set up or presented is the fact that. Um, at this point, anytime anyone has like he he's like giving the time to think and have a choice about killing, like there's premeditated like you know most of the other violence in this movie is retaliation or uh, antagonization in terms of like its violence from you know a bomb going off they react or a landmine going off they react they step into a town a sniper hits a guy they react. Um, all the violence seems to be reactive violence, and this is the only one where he, you know, they could just walk away, and no one killed her, and they could just walk it off in their minds, kind of like a hit and run. But they, he chooses to kill, which is, which is really, it's, you know, I think if we had a better, uh, if, you know, like we said, we don't know what Kubrick's intentions are in this. You know, if he decided to make this Joker, make Joker a more connectable character to the audience, and we watched his progression and growth, then this would probably have a lot more weight to it. But it feels like it's supposed to be weighted and it's supposed to be important. But I I understand like how you know what we're talking about here. Like it's hard to connect with that because we haven't seen a growth. He's just mm-hmm. joked and bumbled his way through the whole movie, and then you know, bam, he now has to make a decision to kill this twelve year old girl who has disrupted everything, and she's just protecting her own kind of thing, which is. It's, you know, it, it doesn't, it's hard to ring true. And I wonder if yeah. that's what Kubrick wants you to feel, which is emptiness of like, this is, this is a fact and this is something that happens and this is not something to either be happy about or sad about. It's just is, which is, that's hard to, uh, to kind of like wrap your head around because it is something that is, it's a fact and it sucks, <laughs> you yeah. know? But it's still weird because he is our he is our protagonist. He is our quote unquote hero, and it is you know when it comes down to it, it is just a mercy kill. So we're kind of I don't know if you guys were kind of okay with it, you know? Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's the thing. There's two other ways to do this, and I think both would have been better if he had killed her and enjoyed it. And I don't know if we do it in some terrible voiceover or no. something like that. Or if he had not done it, if he had, if he was a coward and he walked away, like those to me are both so much more satisfying in a way than what actually happened. Yeah. And, you know, it's crazy if you, if uh, if we went with how Kubrick really wanted this movie to end, a Joker would have died in that scene. Like he wanted, oh, okay. he wanted the movie to end with Joker being killed. Oh, I didn't know that. And yeah, it was Michael mm. Herr who kind of said, "We can't have our only through line character killed at the end, <laughs> especially with all the voiceover that we were doing." Yeah, you know, was he narrating from beyond the grave? Well, Someone reading his journals? You know, it's been done before. You could. It has been done before. I but, think. Uh, I think that uh, there was also an. Uh, I don't know if it was in the book or an earlier draft of the screenplay, but in, uh, apparently, Animal Mother cut off her head. Um, or like he was going to kill her, but he couldn't do it. And so then animal mother does it and sort of like throws it out the window or something. Mm. Um, 
and like he decided that that was just way too gruesome <laughs> which is oh, definitely yeah. the That's... right move because uh, again something that would have been taken entirely the wrong way um oh for sure um you know we'd have a whole album called the sniper's head from two live crew um but that's right i i think i think that it it is also interesting because like he doesn't similar to to barry linden um and alex he doesn't really make that many choices he kind of has things thrust upon him Mm -hmm. a lot in this movie like the the only choice we've seen him make is all has already sort of revealed him his darker side which is continue like uh, participating in the beating of pile and and beating him harder than anybody else so we already Mm -hmm. know he sort of has that animosity in him towards somebody that's doing him uh uh something you know that's having a negative impact on him um so yeah i guess i don't i mean it it feels like in in maybe what i'm what i'm circling around here is is the feeling that kubrick was trying to get at deeper truths in this movie in by presenting reality as it is to such a degree that he lost the through line that would make it clear to the viewer what that what those deeper truths were and by eliminating the sort of the cliche talk that joker would have with somebody in the barracks about how he doesn't want to kill anybody um you know he's made a more realistic movie but he's kind of lost the the thematic underpinning of the film yeah i agree I agree. Yeah, I think the 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 narrative the narrative structure of an arc for that character would probably do a disservice to the thing he wanted to present, and so by removing it, he's kind of uh, you know defanged like kind of where we would our emotions would lie because that would probably be one of those movies in which we watch it and then watch it a second time to get our deeper meanings that we would really kind of dig deeper in, but because he's removed those things, it's hard to. You know, it's like I said earlier in at the beginning of the episode. It was just I picked up on all like so much surface kind of like what he's trying to say that I was confused that like should there be more to this and I can't figure out if I was missing the more <laughs> part and so it became hard to kind of like work in, uh, under that. Um, one of the things that we we haven't like we touched upon the uh, soundtrack type music, but one of the other things that I thought was really interesting was the uh, scored music for this film and how much it had a horror movie quality to it. Yes, I Anyone actually... Dig on yes, I, I actually was thinking like halfway or two-thirds through this movie. Um, this is kind of The Shining 2, this movie. Mm. Like, it, it has a, a horror movie vibe to it to a certain degree. I certainly think those slow motion kills have that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a very, I mean, the formal, the formality, the way that Kubrick shoots the barracks, uh, the, na- the use of natural light um, going through the windows, and then that, that, that deep history of death that is ever present. I mean, especially in that sniper mm-hmm. scene uh, where they're talking about um, the, the snipers uh, like Lee Harvey Oswald and stuff. Um it does uh, this almost feels like the kind of there he's getting in in the shining he was like looking at uh the 
the evil of man in within the domestic space and here he's looking at the evil of man in society and he's we're watching a man become a killer in a in a uh in an outward way as opposed to a, a sort of personal sphere way uh do you know what i mean so it feels like oh yeah. they're very mm-hmm. uh they're they're almost trying to get at the same thing and i don't know if that if that's just because we just watched the shining and i would feel that way about Kubrick's other films if we had seen those just last because I do feel like that is so much of what he he is so fascinated with the evils that men can do and Mm. and here it feels almost entirely like he's more interested in how society and in this case the army um, can turn a normal human being even an intelligent um, engaged human being like Joker into a killer um, much more than he is in showing these what what light what the war was like in Vietnam or being interested at all in uh, why we fought in Vietnam. I mean, like the the clunky like uh, um, newspaper scenes are so obvious that it almost seems just like he threw those in there for no reason, like the <laughs> you know the tweaks of language and stuff like that. Um, yeah. So, so he's just not interested in that at all, and it becomes just purely about this evolution of of man into a killer. It is strange. I I, I wondered why those. Upon further viewing, I, I I guess that you know his reporting stuff, or you know those few scenes, are essential to get him from point A to point B, but they really seemed so unnecessary when I watched them again. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's levity. That's all it is. It's he gets to yeah. make a joke to remind you that he's Joker. Yeah, and that his jokes aren't good. They're not funny. No. Every time he's joking, I'm I am not amused. And when <laughs> characters laugh, I don't understand. The one the one that I did laugh out loud at was when he said, uh, "So is Anne Margaret not coming?" <laughs> oh yeah, no, I like that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've 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 talked about Modine a bunch, but. And we talked about Lee Ermey, but we haven't really talked about D'Onofrio's performance. What do you guys think about that? I mean, it, just like Ermey, I don't think there's much to say. Yeah. He, he's fantastic. He's phenomenal. And, I mean, the fact that this was his – was this his first role? Is that It's correct? his first film role. In yeah. film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is amazing. Th- that's absolutely amazing. And this time I had a, I had a harder time sort of understanding the character a little bit. Um, sort of like, was he, is it terrible to ask, like, was he mentally challenged? Because there are times where, you know, when Joker's really teaching him yeah. how to lace up his boots, I'm like, wait a second, hold on. That seems like the most remedial thing anybody he would be able to figure it out coming in yeah he plays it as he's he he is i believe he is challenged okay. like i i right it never i yeah like when you see stuff like that and when he's like talking like everyone hates me joker like yeah. there's like like complete confusion of why what he's doing wrong and he doesn't understand which you know Honestly, yeah. he should have been kicked out in the first week of basic training when you started to see that he is not mentally proficient at all, and right. it's yeah. it's hard. And he does an amazing job. Like he is so. I want to argue that 
he was in Adventures of Babysitting before this movie, but I might be wrong. Oh, he plays he Thor, the uh, mechanic. <laughs> I want to say that. He but... does. I watched that not too long ago for All that right. goofy podcast. You know, <laughs> I think that came out uh, first, but I think he made it afterwards. Ah, okay. Okay. All right. All right. That makes sense. Um, he's, but, uh, he's in incredible shape in Adventures in Babysitting. His performance is phenomenal, and you can see that he really, uh, you know, he really went for it all the way. Like, I don't even know how he was able to make a make a face that wasn't pure terror as Lee Ermey's just screaming in his face, and he's got this shit-eating yeah. grin that, like, something else is going on. He <laughs> thinks this is all amusing. He doesn't understand that this is deadly serious, and it takes a while for him to understand it. It's also interesting because he is the biggest star in this movie now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But at the time, he he was lesser known than Matthew Modine and a few other people. And um, he it must have been crazy just to have this guy out of, come out of nowhere and and present this terrifying portrait of this descent into into madness. Yeah, and I do have to say that that early scene where Ermi is yelling at him and he cannot stop from smiling. I thought that was absolutely fantastic because the whole time watching Ermi, I was smiling. Like, everything he said I thought was the funniest. (laughs) And his expression was the first sort of honest expression I saw. And I just, I adored that particular scene. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, uh, reading about his process, Ermi had a hard time sometimes because the people, (laughs) the actors were so terrified by him. Kubrick did that whole thing of keeping them separate. They never Mm -hmm. interacted with him until there was filming time. And Ermi would just, you know, he was a drill sergeant. He would just go up one side (laughs) down the other. And these kids were just like petrified and Ermi would start laughing and break character because he couldn't believe that this is you know these kids are like freaking out about this this is just acting and so uh I guess to break him of his breaking character and laughing I guess uh what Vitali what what was it what's the first name of Vitali Leon. Uh, his Leon Leon Vitali uh Cooper's assistant uh they would practice the lines and Vitali would throw tennis balls at him so he would yeah. not be distracted and he would keep his uh so there was lots of you know sessions of uh Vitaly just throwing tennis balls at Ermi while he was practicing his lines but I love that because most of what he said I'm like how can you not laugh while you're saying this yeah it's it it, it absolutely incredible again you know the two of them together anytime they were on screen together anytime they were interacting best moments of the movie for me well, and he, his performance became iconic, obviously, and he just passed away uh, this year, actually. Um, and this was obviously, this performance was almost all anybody talked about. But it is yeah. another interesting example of, like, this is a terrible person who's destroying these mm-hmm. people's minds. Um, but he's doing it in a very funny and charming way, and so we love him for it. <laughs> Well, yeah, well, it's, that's that that's that insidious uh, manner in which it's happening, you know, because in his mind, his character's mind, he is the thing that's going to keep them the most alive yeah. when they go to a right. place that's right. going to be far worse than anything he's doing to them. And so it's that weird, like, you know, 
it's that mentality of, you know, this is good for you, even though it is damaging. It is good for you. It's that it's yeah. that it's that old mentality, um, which is <laughs> it's hard. And you can see the result of a person whose mind is not prepared for that kind of trauma and what happens to that person and how he just breaks and it's like any other, you know, it's like most films, you know, the bad guys get the best dialogue anyway, you yeah. know, an actor who wants to play God, everybody wants to play the devil, you know, so he gets the best lines. He's the antagonist, but he's having a ball and you're having a blast watching. Well, and Kubrick was in, in love with it, obviously, you can tell he just let him go mm-hmm. on and on. Um, and it makes sense because it's both incredibly entertaining and always surprising what's going to come out of his mouth next. Um, but it also does really just put right there on the screen, the duality of man, like the fact that this Mm. guy is charming and, or smart, at least like very funny, uh, clever quips. Mm. Like, uh, you know, he's like a, a real Don Rickles up there. Um, (laughs) but, but like the, what what's happening here is is like s- turning people into sociopaths like it's oh, not it's terrible it's, uh, oh, yeah. and it's and not also like i mean uh, you know obviously i think the the argument would be well you know you got to make soldiers some way but like maybe this isn't the best way to make soldiers maybe this is just the way we've been doing it for so long like that it, because that's like how we see masculinity in this society um and and so like from my perspective it's very I was very uncomfortable when he passed away. I'm sure he sounded like a very nice guy in real life and stuff, but like this was not, this is not a character to be celebrated. And this was what he did in real life before this, like, (laughs) and it feels Mm -hmm. again, very much like this movie became this thing that people could point to and say like, yeah, that's what, you know, being a soldier is supposed to be about. Like, and that's, you know, admirable what he's doing is, um, you know, whipping these soldiers into shape. And Travis, was it, was it you, Travis, that said your dad was in Vietnam? Yeah. Yeah. He okay. Was, yeah. Yeah. My father was as well. Um, he was in uh, the Air Force. Uh, he was a mechanic. So he doesn't really talk about, you know, being in the shit, quote unquote, because mm-hmm. I don't think he was. Um, so all of his stories come from basic training. Um, so, you know, even, you know, he, he talked to me about this film and everything and, you know, all of his basic training stories are goofy, but you know, one day he didn't get up when he was supposed to, and he had to carry his mattress with him all day long, like on hikes and he had to go and take it into the mess hall and stuff like that. But so maybe in a weird way, just talking to my dad, maybe that's even why the first part of this movie resonated with me even more. I can see my dad in there as opposed to out in the field firing the guns you know getting shot at yeah. stuff like that yeah that was uh that was always the hard part i think i had to interview we had to interview a vietnam vet for like some high school project uh, mm-hmm. in u.s history so i chose my dad because i never really talked to him about it and i found out after that interview why he didn't want to talk about it um Mm. he yeah he did basic training and he said it was just you know it was a lot like that you know just lots of verbal abuse lots of pushing you well beyond what you're capable of doing um but then yeah he was he was stationed in vietnam he was in action um Mm -hmm. i think he he ended up working with uh 
He, you know, when they call for uh, mortar, when they're doing mortar fire and they're calling for sure. coordinates for what angle, he ended up after kind of doing some other stuff. He showed his smarts and he ended up being on the other end of that phone. Yeah. So he would do the math and set up okay. for their angles and positions. Um, and I think that was because he started driving a general around in a jeep. <laughs> it was okay. he he got into motor pool and he drove this guy around. So he had a bit of that, uh, you know like mashed type of vibe of like trying to work his way in the system and get better promotions and get out of mm. being on the front line. Cause when he was there, he did not, you know, as you can imagine, he did not enjoy it at all. So, uh, yeah, he, and he said, I think the things that he was most comfortable talking about was the camaraderie and mm-hmm. the amusing portions of the stories, which, you know, you can kind of see, like if you, were to remove yourself from this and you had gone through this experience, you're probably going to remember the funny stuff and remember it as funny because all the trauma, you're just going to suppress it. So watching that one guy who had to walk with his pants down around his ankles with his thumb in his mouth, that Mm -hmm. that was a hoot. But really, he was making a killer. He was making someone who was just emotionally unprepared to do this, which goes to what Matt was saying about the masculinity and what it means to be a man. And which mm-hmm. is one of Kubrick's common and most focused on themes, you know, is is mm-hmm. is man. Like, what does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a man in this war? And I think when he made Paths of Glory, he really focused on the class struggle between soldier between soldiers mm-hmm. and the upper class who was ruling and the lower. And this one, he he just like did a like a. A level playing field there are no classes there was barely even an enemy in this movie it was just what this experience was like flat and Mm -hmm. which i think is why it's so challenging to talk about because we want to ascribe all these things to it or we want you know all of our problems with this movie are the things that we can't put into words or we can't relate to because we can't figure out how it works in our experience, which is, it's a strange, it's a really hard film to talk about in this, in, in these terms. I mean, this is our 12th one. We've, we've been able to discuss quite clearly lots of (laughs) themes and lots of uh, ideas and concepts that he's putting out. And this one is like, it is hard to talk about these things without it just being surface because a lot of his surface stuff isn't even there. It's strange. It's a, it's, this is a, this is a challenge and I'm, I'm enjoying talking about it with you guys for sure. So it sounds like your dad was kind of like one of the guys who would have been in the um, in the bunker with the general in Paths of Glory when he he gave the order to fire on his yes. own troops. Yes, and he would say it's like no, yeah. that's not what we're doing here. <laughs> I would hope so. <laughs> I would, yeah, I mean, I I believe that my father was made of a, a nice character at least. So uh, he 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 was like uh, Kirk Douglas in the sh- in the war, always with his shirt off, saying, it, "You can go to hell." <laughs> he barely had it on. It was it was quite crazy. <laughs> he still never wears a shirt. That's his thing. <laughs> That's his whole shtick. <laughs> well, speaking of all that stuff, I've, I'm digging out another quote because I found lots of good quotes in this uh, for this movie because I was struggling with it. So I did a lot more reading than I normally do. Most of the times for when we were talking about these movies, I've been focused solely on the film itself and my reactions and my thoughts and my processes for it. But this one left me like confused. So I did a lot of research. <laughs> so uh, I think we're talking about 
humanity and man. And there's this great quote that I read that he said, he said, uh, you don't have to make Frank Capra movies to like people. Capra presents a view of life as we all wish it really were. But I think you can still present a truer picture of life without being regarded as a misanthrope. So (laughs) I really think he's pushing like that idea of, these are humans and sometimes we're going to like them and sometimes we're totally Mm -hmm. not going to like them at all. And we have to kind of like, uh, come to terms with this idea that humanity is ugly and messy, but there is grace somewhere in there and we just have to work hard to find it, which I think is a lot of what happens with this movie. We have to like work hard to find those moments that we can connect and it's, it's a challenge. Yeah, I guess I just um, wish that it felt like there was more of an invisible hand behind the second half of this movie. Mm. Because you always feel that in The Shining, you know? You always feel like there's something out there that is messing with you. And here it just felt like he was still searching for this movie when he finished it. Yeah. I I don't know. I, I can't we just somebody, I'm sure somebody did this on YouTube. Just recut the film, right? <laughs> just have the first half cut to credits. The end. That's it. <laughs> like maybe that's what should happen. I'm pretty sure you can just do that. Doug. You don't have to. <laughs> yeah. I was, yeah. I guess it really doesn't take just, that just much have, time or effort. Paint it black on your MP3 player. <laughs> just, hit hit the button yeah because again you know i and and it's all the big stuff i i feel like that we talked about but again like and i mentioned it earlier the dialogue just the dialogue alone when joker's doing that terrible john wayne impression and animal mother is saying you walk the you talk the talk but do you walk the walk? I'm sitting there like, people don't talk like this. Like, especially some, you know, 20-year-old kid in Vietnam. He's not going to say these things. They literally, and and one of you, I forget who had mentioned it earlier, it just feels like they're reading off a page of dialogue. And, and for all the takes that Kubrick is famous for, that's what perplexed me when it came to these characters yeah. actually having conversations. I was like, you took... This take? Well, how about when he That's runs down the line with the camera and they're each saying a different line, like a, another oh, clever that's, quip? Yeah. Like, were they about to, to like rough. start doing like a musical number? Like, <laughs> oh. who, t- who, two, three, four. Who had like did? Is this like the tenth time during the war that they've done this routine, and so they've <laughs> they've mastered the next best one upmanship? Because yep, people are shtick. not that quick, especially when they're in the middle no, of a no, war. No, no, <laughs> no. That's why and they that... do it so many times with the with the interviews and when they bury the two guys and you know that the camera pans around and they all have something yeah. clever yeah. and fun to say. I'm like, come on, you've done this three times. Let's just let's move on from See, this. See, that's why I wonder if he was. That's why I wonder, like looking at that and talking about that. That's why I wonder if he is. He's he's like like <laughs> having these kids. <laughs> play act they're like play, the yeah. movies you know so all their interactions are like those horrible quips that you see in all these action movies and especially if you think about it in 1987 when this movie was released 
1984 when it was started filming this was the this was the heyday of 80s action movies where everyone has is the funniest and smartest person in the room while they're in the most tense and under pressure situations so i'm wondering if like that's where he's coming from with this is kind of like pointing it at them and saying like this is media influencing these people and this is how like which is funny because you know when we talked about the beginning and matt was talking about how this is how we shape our our future people you know and this is also him saying this is how media shapes how people act out in the world yeah and the other thing that i find really hard is that and especially knowing now that it's filmed in reverse order where we shot the war then we shot basic mm-hmm. training none of the lessons from basic training seems to permeate into the war sections. There's nothing in there that you see that they kind of like, there's an echo of or some sort of play on, which you would think that if this is so important, we're spending 45 minutes of the film on it, that it would resonate in the second half as in, as something of import where a lot of his other two act films, they're mirrors. Yeah. And this one doesn't have mm-hmm. that mirror structure. It's it, they're almost they're almost independent of each other, which is 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 different from his other two act films. Why do you think Kubrick did that so much, especially after two thousand one? I mean, all of them basically. The last four movies we've covered essentially have a two act structure. Is it just the duality of man again? <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, duality of man. <laughs> I mean, it, it possibly could be. I mean, he's he he was one of those people that wore his fascinations on his sleeve. And, you know, like we talked about, he was super Freudian. And then at some point he became super Jungian. And he was just really into that mm-hmm. concept of, of you know, Jung's shadow character. The same thing and... happened to Jung. He was <laughs> super Freudian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he became super Jungian. <laughs> But I don't know. It's a it I it could be that um it also could be that he doesn't like to end things. Like he likes to just kinda like leave them like his movies always felt like and I think we've talked about this and touched upon this in other episodes, is that his films feel like we're stepping into this world with these characters without backstory, and then we leave before these characters have either fully evolved or fully changed. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe that's why, because the three-act structure, like, in its inherent construction, there is an end and a resolve to the end. And with two-act structure, there is no end, really. Maybe that is kind of, like, part of what interested him about that kind of format. I don't know. And I do like like what you're saying about no backstory, because it's something I didn't really think about while I was watching it, but... Yeah, even Matthew Modine's character, there there is no backstory. We don't really know where this guy came from. We don't know who he was. If you look at a lot of war movies, it's, you know, I'm from Iowa, small town. I got a girl back home. Oh, yeah. Here's a picture. Here's a I got picture. it in my helmet. Like, I'm, I'm right. going to die in the next reel. <laughs> yeah, there's really none of that in this film. Do you think that he knew Rafterman before the war, and that's what he's talking about when he says your mother would kill me if anything happened to you or do you think that's just like purely uh just a line i just thought it was yeah i just thought it was yeah i think guys say 
Yeah, I think it's just guy stuff, kind of like yeah. the joke about because that was really the only thing. Sisters. But there was no real reason why he would be so protective of this guy. Like, is it just because he's short? Like, I don't know why. I don't. <laughs> I you know, I think it felt like it feel it felt to me like he was the green guy in the group, and Modine had kind of gone out on missions and didn't want to bring the new guy because there's the inherent the new guy's going to get you killed because he's stupid. I don't know. That's how I felt. Like I just, that's how I, I read it as I don't, I don't know if that's true or not, but um, the idea of his name being rafter man felt like he's in the rafters watching from a distance, which he wanted to change. Mm-hmm. He's the only one who says he doesn't like his name. Yeah. Everyone else accepts their name and their role in this, in this play, which I guess, you know, if you think about it in terms of like, the grand scheme of like, you know, commedia dell'arte, like everyone has their role to play. And he is, is the one of the person who uh, has any sort of change. <laughs> he wants something and he goes for it and he does the thing he wants to do, which is weird. The, the rafter man is the one who has the only sort of arc. <laughs> well, he's the, he's the only one that doesn't seem like went through training camp at all. Like he, like everybody else has yeah. this sort of cynicism to them. And the, he's just like, Let's go do this. I'm ready. Vietnam, man. It's a trip. I'm here because I want to kill someone. Yeah. And I haven't got to yeah. kill someone yet. It's like the little dog in the Looney Tunes cartoons that yes, jumps around totally. the big dog. Like, oh, <laughs> Shut up. Let's go. Let's go. i got to get in there. <laughs> Shut up. No, but I think I think right. that the, the idea that there is no, no real ending is very true. Um, mm-hmm. And like... And I think part of that is that there, it's like the end of The Shining, where there is sort of this um, implication that it's cyclical, that mm. this is just all. This has always happened. It's happened before. It happens in this movie, and it's going to keep happening again. Um, you know, Barry Lyndon is that way as well, just because like mm-hmm. he's he kind of had a meaningless existence, and there's plenty of people that you can point to who have had similar meaningless existences. Um, just like him. And so, yeah, it does have this kind of open-ended perspective that um, it, I mean, ultimately the endings of his movies uh, since 2001 are sort of unsatisfying um, in a way mm-hmm. uh, that they, that, you know, he has sort of memorable final images in a lot of them, but they're not necessarily, um, moments that put a a period on uh what you're seeing in any way Mm -hmm. yeah for sure i mean you know thinking about the fact that there's no like origin to these characters and they're just kind of like in this weird nightmare world that (laughs) of of the of this war it reads a lot like a more developed and less pretentious concept of fear and desire which was his first film um, I was wondering, uh, Doug, have you seen that film? I haven't seen that, and I'm I'm actually looking through his filmography right now. That's the only one I haven't seen. It's on um, Amazon Prime if you're interested. It's only oh, okay. an hour. It's not good. Yeah, but okay. it's worth seeing. It, yeah, it is not good. It is. Uh, I had to watch it. Th- no, I've, I I, yeah, I've th- listened to enough of your episodes to know that it's not good. <laughs> I had to watch it three Which, times. Maybe that's just why to have I haven't watched. To talk about. What do you guys think? I mean, I guess because he he did make three war movies ultimately. Although if you had asked him, he would have said he only made two. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But uh, I mean, 
it, it, I do think it's interesting comparing this movie, especially to Paths of Glory. Um, Travis, how how would you describe the evolution of those three movies, but especially comparing this movie to Paths of Glory in terms of what Kubrick did as a filmmaker? Well, I think I would say that uh, you know the, his first movie, Fear and Desire he really wanted to talk about the psychology of what war does to people. And he failed at that miserably. And he was very unhappy with it. So his next war movie he made, if you, if you don't, you know, if uh, Paz of Glory, it's more of a, as much as we, you know, as much as I enjoy it, and it is one of my favorites of his, all of his films, um, it's much more of a traditionally styled film like in 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 terms of like its narrative structure and what happens within you know there's lots of subversive things that he goes on to talk about within how the film you know what the message of the film really is but it's more of a it's more of a war film like you put that next to other war films of that time some might not be as deep as this one but it is kind of in that vein of that style of war film and i think as much as he probably liked that movie and it gave him a name to propel his career forward, I think what he really wanted to do was talk about war in the way he's doing in Full Metal Jacket, which is more along the lines of what Fear and Desire was, which is this isn't about good or bad. This isn't about who's right or wrong. This is about what it takes to be a man and do these things that are not correct in a in a polite society you know it's it's that it's that concept which i think is very is very interesting because as i'm watch as i was watching it the second time i started thinking about a lot of fear and desire and a lot about these characters with no past moving forward on a mission because we don't know what their mission is they're just going Mm. someplace like mm-hmm. you don't know what it is and then they're in this like they're not in a real world like it doesn't feel like vietnam it could be any war right it could be any mm-hmm. war which is the beginning of fear and desire yep. men with no past in any war a war of the psych a psychological war you know war of the psyche and that's what he's doing in this film it's almost like this is his a this is his correction to his first hmm. mistake that he always hated. Mm. Um, but it doesn't, I still think that the reason it doesn't work is because you need some of that narrative structure to bind it together for your message to be a little more universal and clear. This one is too, is too much of just here, here is, here is, here is a black void and stare into it and then pull back from your own personal experiences what you will which is really hard sometimes because especially this is a narrative film i don't know no i I, yeah, I, I, I really like that description of this movie actually mm-hmm. that the black void i mean it does it feels like that it, i think <clears throat> the ambition of the movie is to present if the if the ambition of the movie is to present life and present sort of masculinity or um, the journey of these men uh, as it really is, uh, you are always going to fail at that because that is an impossible task to demand of a movie. And you can prevent, you can present a subject or a, um, or a war perhaps 
as it really is if you are truly perfect in your execution of something um but to tackle a subject that large uh is extremely ambitious um but i mean he some you look at something like 2001 and it's not exactly like a a a, a small intimate uh um two-hander so it, there there's definitely <laughs> um he definitely had reason to believe that he could pull this off. And a lot of people do think he pulled it off to a certain degree. Um, but yeah. yeah, I mean, I agree with mm -hmm. pretty much everything that you just said. I think Paths of Glory is a Hollywood movie. Ultimately, um, you know, there's good guys and bad guys. You have the star at the center who's pretty much flawless in terms of his character, um, unless you dig really deep. And, um, it's, uh, but it just happens to be like an amazing version of that. And Full Metal Jacket still feels very much like Kubrick's, the second half of Kubrick's career, his post 2001 career. And um, that makes it in some ways a much more impressive movie and complex and difficult. And, um, you know, you can kind of talk about it forever as we uh, are one to do on this podcast but um it doesn't for the movie that it is it doesn't succeed to the degree that paths of glory succeeds in the movie that that is and so you you're kind of grading on a curve to a certain degree because this is kubrick if somebody else had made this movie it might not feel as much like a missed opportunity but it definitely does feel like i mean i i well, I'll save my, my ranking perspective for, for, for shortly, but I, I do think, uh, I do think that there's, um, there's lots of, of things in this movie that feel like they could have been, uh, improved. I know, I know one thing this movie is successful in doing is in making me very happy. He never made a Holocaust movie because if this is the bleakness level that he's able to reach with this movie, I cannot even fathom how horrible I would have I would feel mm. watching a Holocaust movie made by him because mm -hmm. I already feel horrible watching any Holocaust movie and then making it almost as devoid and cold that he possibly could make it when thinking about humanity in terms of its base base level I it it is <laughs> it is terrifying <laughs> to think about that yeah but i think i the one thing i will say is that i think um because the holocaust is uh obviously essentially devoid of moral complexity <laughs> like mm -hmm. this is like <laughs> the worst thing that uh, you know society basically has ever done um there's uh it it's it's a lot he, it's more interesting to him, but it's also like right there. Like the, the Vietnam war is, is so amorphous and both in terms of tactics and in terms of, uh, the, the perspective of <clears throat> what it was, why it was fought, how it was fought, um, all those kinds of things. Um, even the, the leaders on both sides were incredibly complex and uh, vacillated frequently in terms of what they, their intentions were. Um, so when you don't directly address that, it sort of falls apart um, and becomes 
even more amorphous to the point where it almost dissipates entirely. And the Holocaust can, it's almost impossible to do that with, with that subject. I mean, it just hangs over you so clearly and, and, and its purpose is so apparent that I think he would have been able to focus more on other things while, while still maintaining that narrative threat, those narrative threads. But I mean, again, we'll, we'll never know. Yeah. Mm. No, I, in a weird way, I would have, um, as you wouldn't have wanted to see it, I, I would be very interested to see what he would have done with the Holocaust movie. I mean, just the fact that he focused half of this on basic training, like uh, it could be a Holocaust film, the likes of which nobody has ever done before. And, you know, certainly since. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he had, he had the, the layout of what it was going to be. I think there's a, there was a script, but I don't think it's ever been. Oh, uh, really? Been released. Oh, yeah, he, okay. Yeah. yeah I've it's never called looked the Aryan papers. Okay. He, it was based on a, a true story, I think. Right. Yeah. All right. Okay. Um, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. But, uh, well, we'll, we'll get into that on a different episode, but, um, we get to this, uh, when we get to this point of the podcast, Doug, we like to, uh, rank, these movies sure uh, so oh no no i'm where yeah, uh I'm where would you uh place full metal jacket and do you have a a favorite kubrick movie at this point um well the fact that uh and now with fear and desire the fact that i haven't seen that so i've seen 12 of his 13 films um i'd probably put this dead center if not maybe a little bit below center. I mean, I don't want to go through my rankings. Nobody listening cares. Um, but you know, it's, it's, it's a good movie. It's an enjoyable movie. It's, it's not bad, um, Middle of the pack. but it's certainly not upper yeah. echelon Kubrick or, or any type of film to be honest. And, and as I said before, I, I think, I think 2001 is his best film. Um, personally, Eyes Wide Shut is my favorite, probably followed by The Shining, and then 2001. Nice. That's a good ranking. Trap. All right. I had a – this was a – this was challenging. We're, now we're getting into 12 films. It's a, <laughs> it's a lot of uh, positioning. Um, and during this time, I also saw The Killing Again because a friend of mine had never wow. seen it. So I wanted to show it to him, and so – the killing moved a little bit in my listings. So Travis, I just want to stop you right there. You are not allowed to go back to previous <laughs> movies. So I, I, I it, it, it moved. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I had to, I couldn't, I couldn't help myself, but uh fear and desire still being in its lowest place and then working our way up the line. Lolita is still second to last killer's kiss Spartacus. Here's where I place Full Metal Jacket. Mm. I, it doesn't, this movie doesn't work for me in so many ways. Um, I almost put it below Spartacus, Whoa. but then I just thought of the bloat of Spartacus. And I think, <laughs> and I don't think this movie is, is completely failing at what it's trying to do. I just don't think, I am, f- I am failing at connecting with this in the way that I think he wants audiences to connect to it and i think at some point in my life maybe when i'm much older or maybe if i've gone through some trauma that i can then relate somehow i think this movie might move forward but for now i 
I just uh, the things that really stick out is the mm-hmm. as the racism, the sexism, the fact that there's only the you know the only way for these men to become men is to kill a girl. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. to that's their only way of then becoming a, a, a whole unit is to kind of finally cast off uh, any sort of uh, tenderness or caring, which is one of the big themes that I think um, is missed out on is a missed opportunity in Joker's progression is because you have those moments of caring and tenderness um, and then he trades that off and then. I think his little bits of trying to take care of Rafterman is could have been more of his caring and tenderness, but it doesn't play that way. And so when he finally does see Rafterman celebrate becoming a base killing machine, that he loses his sense of humanity and says, as much as that's a mercy killing, I, I don't. Th- I I feel that it easily could be him saying, "Fuck it, I'm stepping over the line with everyone else. I'm tired of trying to <laughs> hold back my humanity and just gives in to it," which is his whole you know born to kill. But you have the choice to be peaceful, and he chooses to no longer be peaceful, which I think is is a strong message. But I think it doesn't resonate the way it should and could. And so because of that, I don't know if it's me or if it was him, but it falls back in my listings. And then A Clockwork Orange, which uh, used to be The Killing. The Killing has moved forward a bit. Uh, Doctor Strangelove, Shining, Pass of Glory, Barry Lyndon, 2001. Matt. Okay. How you doing with Full Metal Jacket? I, I think that there's a wide range that I could put this movie in. I really feel differently about it every time I think about it. Um, but I think ultimately, um, I, I'm i still in, interested in it, and I still can't sort of entirely let go of my history with it, because I, I do think there's there is a lot to kind of grapple with from a... Um, uh, a moral perspective um and especially when you're kind of the age of these of these guys in this movie um but that at the same time all the, uh, you know all the stuff that we've talked about um on this podcast uh comes to mind and i, I mean it's tough I, I think i probably will put it above uh clockwork orange I think mainly because uh, when I think about the two movies, the one that I want to watch again soon is Full Metal Jacket. I feel not finished with it uh, in a way that after I watched Clockwork Orange this time, I kind of felt like I had squeezed all the juice out of it. I just made that up. That was very, very (laughs) good job. Uh, And um, yeah, it, it doesn't feel like it's going to give me anything ever again. And I, I, I don't necessarily feel that way. Like you said, with, with this movie, maybe when I'm older, I'll feel differently about it. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but so I'll put this above clockwork orange. Um, but behind the killing, I think it's a, I think it's a very obviously well-made movie. Um, but I don't think it fully comes together, especially in the middle. So yep. there you go. I'd buy that. Doug? 
thank you so much yeah. for oh. <laughs> uh, take get going on this tour with us. Uh, your 365 days are up now. Oh, you can good. hop on that helicopter. Man. I the other thing about Platoon, I'm just gonna say one more thing making fun of Platoon. Yeah. The whole scene the whole scene where like Keith David finds out who I love, by the way, like finds out he's gonna go home. Like I just kept expecting like he gets on the helicopter and like then like some stray bullet comes and hits him. And he's like, <laughs> I was just going home. Like, it was it was exactly that kind of movie. Like I was totally ready for that to happen. Um, but you you did not get the stray bullet yet, Doug. Anyway, uh, you're you're gonna make no, no, it to the end of this podcast. No. Congratulations. Well, thank you. No, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. My only regret is I won't be on for Eyes Wide Shut now. Yeah, if we had only known that it was like your favorite movie <laughs> yeah. ever. Uh... <laughs> oh, that's all right. Hey, when you got you're going director by director, right? Like you guys are gonna continue this on different directors, oh, right? Yeah. That's uh-huh. the plan. That's the plan. Hey, if I could right now, when you get to David Lynch, if I could come up for Lost Highway, if I could just claim wow. that right now, <laughs> I would really appreciate it. You are that. sticking your flag <laughs> in the Lost Highway moon right now right. on air I think, to force us I think to. Because, we can't be like, no, no, Doug, we're not doing that. You know, oh, just, It could be like 12 years from now. Listen, I don't care. <laughs> just like Drill, Drill Sergeant Hartman rewards Joker for just coming right out there and being bold about something. Yeah. I think we could reward you with we'll that. We'll do it. Sure. We'll do it. We're gonna, Doug, you're going to be on your deathbed, and we're going to come up, and we're going to be like, Doug, I've got some great news for you. We're finally doing David Lynch. <laughs> And you're gonna and like good. How did I die so young? And you're gonna God. you're gonna point at the black monolith, and that's it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so next time we have Doug's favorite movie of all time, Eyes Wide Shut. All time. Uh, Travis, when was the last time you saw Eyes Wide Shut? The last time I saw Eyes Wide Shut was probably about eight years oh, ago. Oh, okay. So fairly I recently. Never, I've, yeah, I, I haven't. I never made the. I haven't watched it in Blu-ray, and I've never seen the European cut, the one yeah, with, with more gratuity added yeah. back in. Yeah, the CGI people blocking the camera <laughs> frame, which is the most creative uh, use of uh, CG people since uh, Jar Jar Binks. Um, yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time, and I was actually doing research to find which version to see. Which version are we watching? I'm. I have the Region B uh, Blu-ray collection, so that is the one that I will be watching. I don't know if they're okay. still different. Did they get rid of the the CGI people in the American version? Well, the I, this and other questions no. will be answered next time on be. the complete. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess then all I can say is we're complete for another week.